Thanks, Danny. Merry Christmas to you all. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke 2. We're going to look at verses 1 to 7. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, how good it is to be with fellow believers or potentially some that may not yet know your son as Savior, but have gathered with us today to worship. We pray, Father, that we might be reminded of your incredible love for us through sending your son, your willing son, to take on human flesh, the God-man, what we call the incarnation. Allow our hearts to sing with worship and praise and thanksgiving for rescuing us from sin, providing a way that we might spend eternity with you in heaven, freed from the bondage of sin into new life. Father, we thank you for your son, the Christ of Christmas, the reason that we celebrate this season. And guide our time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Witold Pilecki. He was a Polish captain. In fact, he established the Polish resistance. He was a Christ follower. He came to what was left of the resistance government after his country was invaded by Nazi Germany. He came to them with a plan. He said, something is going on in Auschwitz. Something sinister, something evil. And we need eyes and ears inside that death camp. We need someone to go in there to record history, to pass on history, to record the atrocities that we suspect is going on in Auschwitz. And so he had a plan, this Christ follower. He said, I want you to redo my papers. Although I'm not of Jewish descent, I want you to declare me to be a Jew. I want my papers to clearly be marked Jewish and then I will be captured. They forged his papers. He went to the Warsaw Uprisings, deliberately was captured, was assigned number 4859. He was no longer a person, but a piece of chattel. Somebody who was demeaned, someone who was mocked and beaten and bludgeoned in Auschwitz. Can you imagine a person who is not a Jew, claiming to be a Jew, purposely allowing himself to be captured, to leave his beloved wife and his two sons to help people who had no hope and to record the atrocities against the people that were not his own. While he was in Auschwitz, he formally created a resistance to the SS and to the Nazis, and to the German soldiers that were there in the death camp. He also scrounged around, got enough parts together to create a radio in which he began to communicate with the outside world. There was a series of couriers that came in and out of Auschwitz to provide food. 
And he would slip them little pieces of paper about the atrocities that were going on. By the time it was 1943, towards the end of that, he had enough evidence that he volunteered as a baker in the bakery, overpowered the soldiers, and actually fled Auschwitz on his own, finished the reporting, and sent it to London, England. When it arrived at London, England, the Allies believed that he had greatly exaggerated the atrocities at Auschwitz. Nothing could be that bad. Yet we know that 1.1 million individuals died at Auschwitz, murdered. 90% of those who were murdered were of Jewish descent. One out of every six Jews who died in the Holocaust died in Auschwitz. And this man, Witold Pilecki, from inside the camp, was able to record all of it. A contemporary Jewish publication made this statement. In humanity, there is a great divide. The divide between those who see wrong and those who do something about wrong. He did something about wrong. He went to help those who could not help themselves. Some of the many awards and rewards that he received are among the following. The Order of the White Eagle, the Cross of Valor, the Wausau Cross of the Uprising, the Auschwitz Cross, the Silver Cross of Merit, and then the highest award given by Poland to both military and civilians, the Order of Polonia Restituta, which means the Order of the Rebirth of Poland. Polecki gave up his freedom, temporarily his wife and his sons, to help those who could not help themselves. And without in any way diminishing this hero, this man of valor, we need to understand that even what he did pales in comparison to what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, with angels at his beck and call, with all power and all knowledge, the ability to meet every need that he has, every desire that he has, gave it up because he saw you, he saw you, he saw me in the state of our sin. Knowing that we were helpless to provide for our own sin, he came took on human flesh, the God-man, humiliated himself to take on that of the form of a baby, an utterly helpless baby, lived 30 sinless lives, grew in wisdom and stature, then three and a half years of public ministry, again without sin, then willingly went to the cross. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, that through him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the Christ of Christmas. That's who you and I celebrate today and hopefully every day for all of eternity. I want to pick up in our text. I want to read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered this was the first registration while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David. So he went from north down south to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The familiar text, frankly, it starts with a lot of power, a lot of pomp, a lot of pageantry. There's a lot of power brokers that are mentioned in the text. It begins in verse 1 with Caesar, hail Caesar. It's actually Octavian. He's the man who brought the Pax Romana, the Roman peace to the Roman Empire. You remember his predecessor, not an immediate predecessor, was General Julius Caesar. He wanted to be an emperor. You remember that the Senate was actually in control, and the Senate said to General Julius, you may not cross the Rubicon River with your army. But the general thought he no longer needed to listen to the Senate, and he crossed the Rubicon River, that threw the Senate into a great amount of disdain and dismay. And so some, like Gaius Cassius and Marcus Brutus of E2 Brutus fame from Shakespearean's play Julius Caesar, decreed that Julius needed to die. And so on the Ides of March, the 15th of March, 44 B.C., they murdered General Julius Caesar. That sent the Roman Empire into utter disarray, civil war for the next 17 years. Mark Antony on one side, Brutus and Cassius on the other side. And finally, after 17 years of civil war, Octavian brought the nation back together. He brought the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. He secured the borders sent out the infidels, expanded the borders of Rome throughout all of the known world. Octavian is a power broker, a man of power and prestige. You don't mess with Octavian. Next, we're introduced in verse 2 to Quirinius. Quirinius is governor of Syria. He too is a power broker, though he's a vice regent at best. He's under the thumb of Octavian. What Octavian says, Quirinius does. But don't allow that to fool you. Quirinius does have his own standing army. He has his own economy. You mess with Quirinius to your own demise. He's a man of power and prestige and pomp. Although not in the Luke text, Matthew 2 introduces us to yet a third ruler, his name is Herod, King Herod. That's Herod the Great, Herod the Builder, the first of five Herods mentioned in the New Testament. Herod also is under Octavian's thumb. He serves at the pleasure of Octavian, though he has the title king of king of Jerusalem. Herod at this point is 66 years old. He's mentally unstable. 
He's already initiated several pogroms against the Jews. Anyone he suspects might go after his throne, he kills. He's already murdered his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his favorite wife, Mariamne I, three of his sons. That last little tidbit caused Octavian once to quip, it's safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. He's a man of power and prestige and pomp. Finally, we come to verse 4. We're introduced to a man named Joseph. He's a tecton. That means he's a stone carpenter. In Israel, they don't have much wood. We hear the word carpenter, and we think he's building out of wood. All they've got are olive trees, and they're not cutting those down. No, he works out of stone. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you'll see mangers all over the place. They're made out of stone, not wood. They tend to be about this high, about like that, by that. And the center carved out or chiseled out, that's what Joseph does for a living. It's an honorable living, but it's nothing prestigious. But we know that Joseph and Mary both have, well, they have royal blood coursing through their bones. They're both from the tribe of David. They both are related to King David, but nobody cares They have no pomp, they have no power, they have no prestige. When they get to Bethlehem after a 90-mile travel time, even the Motel 6 won't take them in, and nobody is leaving the lights on. Nobody cares about David. Nobody cares about Mary. Maybe you understand. Maybe some of you are related to an individual who is rather famous or rather wealthy, And yet nobody has passed anything on to you. Well, that's true in my family. About three centuries ago or so, uh, the Hines, we now spell it H-I-N-D-S, came to this country. Our name was Americanized, but that's not the original spelling. Instead, Hines was spelled H-E-I-N-Z. You might see it up on PowerPoint. That's true. I'm related to them, distantly so. In 2013, they sold the company to uh, Berkshire Hathaway and 3G Capital for a cool $26 billion. I haven't seen a red dime of it yet. (laughs) Not that I'm bitter or anything. So sometimes... We're distantly related to somebody and it does us no good. Well, that's exactly what happens to David and Mary. They're related to Israel's greatest king, King David, from 1000 BC, 1000 years earlier, but nobody cares. Nobody pays any attention when a heavy laden woman, a young woman who has traveled 90 miles south, needs to deliver a child. Nobody will allow the child into their house, into the inn. The child is born in a stable cave. Nobody pays attention. Nobody but God. God sends a herald. He sends an angel. This last Wednesday, I was teaching One Way Club over in Weston. I dressed up as a shepherd and taught it in a first-person way to the young kids. 
And then I told the kids that there was something I was about to teach them that their parents didn't know, and they could go home and ask their parents about it because I'm guessing their parents are unaware of a small tidbit of the Christ story. You see, in ancient Israel, when a child was born, it is the responsibility of the father to hire a herald to go through the streets to proclaim the birth of a child. Joseph doesn't do that. But God does. God sends an angel and then sends an angelic host. And we read about it in Luke 2, 14. And they say, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, on whom his favor rests. The proclamation of one angel and then a host of angels was fulfilling the tradition of the Father proclaiming the Son to others. Because the Son belonged to the Father and was later adopted by Joseph. But it's not just the angels that notice the birth. It's also some magi. The magi come from Babylon the Magi at this point are about to become Christ followers, but prior to that, they're not. They're actually part of what would be Zoroastrianism today, worshiping the false god of Mazda, the Babylonian god. They are high priests, not kings. They're stargazers. They're astrologers. They look at the different constellations and attempt to predict the present and the future. Understand what happened in Babylon. In 586 and 601 BC, the Jews were carried into captivity, the 70 years. With them came the sacred scrolls of Babylon. Certainly those sacred scrolls ended up in the religious keeper's possession. That would be the Magi. And in the book of Numbers, it tells us that a star will appear in the sky and the star will be a new king and that new king will be messianic. And so they see a star and they travel 600 miles there. They travel 600 miles back. Matthew 2, 11 tells us that when they arrive, Mary and Joseph are no longer in the stable cave. They're in a house. I would take it to be about 24 hours later. Though uh, if my esteemed colleague Brian over here were preaching, he'd tell you it's a few weeks later. He's wrong. That's okay. That's why he's in the front row and I'm up here. <laughs> Not at all true. Not at all true. Actually, Scripture doesn't tell us the distance between the time of Jesus' birth and when the Magi arrive. But they find Jesus in a little humble house not much better than a stable cave. No power, no prestige, no pomp, nothing. In fact, let me read the text again in verses six and seven. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And we've got to ask ourselves, with a text that's filled with pomp and pageantry and power, filled with Octavian and Quirinius and Herod and even the Magi, 
who come with an entourage, why do we find the king of kings, the king of glory, born in a stable cave to a betrothed woman from Nazareth, of which the Jews said, out of Nazareth, nothing good can come. Why would God allow his son to be born in such a humble way? Ultimately, we can only guess, though we'll see in a moment, there's one clear statement in Scripture. But I think we can guess as follows. Jesus came in utter humility because we are to be imitators of Christ. And as Christ followers, we are to live with humility. We are to live understanding who we are in relation to who God is. I think another reason is because Jesus came not just for the powerful and the power brokers. He came for the least of these, and he calls us to care for the least of these as well. Ultimately, though, we don't know why he came without the power and the pageantry and the pomp, but we're thankful that Jesus came. Let me make three concluding thoughts from the text. The first is this. God is totally in control of history. I hope we see this. God is totally in control of history. God invades history. Sometimes we look at world leaders or national leaders. We see a world that is out of control and, and we feel like, man, there's really no hope. But remember that God is sovereign over history and although he doesn't always invade history, he sometimes allows the repercussions of our sinful acts to impact, affect, and infect history. There are other times that God sovereignly intervenes in history. And that's true for the birth of Christ. You remember 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Micah in chapter 5, verse 2 said, But you, O Bethlehem of Epitaph, are by no means least among the tribes of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler from of old, from ancient of times. So the Messiah is to be born down south in Bethlehem. The problem is Joseph and Mary, because of the second Herod, Herod Archelaus, they fled up north. They don't live down south. They don't live in Bethlehem. They live up in Nazareth. And so God orchestrates all of history. He takes the most powerful man on the face of the earth, Octavian, to initiate a tax. That's kind of common for Octavian. And a census. One of only two censuses we know that he ever initiated and the only one in this part of the world. God took the most powerful man in the world and had him initiate a census which, by the way, we can read in secular history, it did in fact take place, as the scriptures declare. And those of Davidic birth had to return. In this case, Joseph and his betrothed wife, heavy laden with child, had to travel 90 miles south so that the Messiah, in fulfillment of prophecy, would be born in a stable cave in Bethlehem. God is in control of history. Don't allow the despair of world events and world leaders to bring you down. Remember that God intervenes, God intersects, God controls history. 
Galatians 4.4 puts it this way. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. The phrase fullness of time really means when God declared it to be time, when God's purposes had arrived, that's when God intersected history. That's when God took over. That's when the Messiah came. That's when you and I went from hopelessness to hopeful because our sins were paid by Jesus Christ if we believe in him as Savior. Second, while I earlier speculated as to why Jesus was not born with power and pageantry and pomp. And I speculated his humility as a model for Christ's followers. And he came not just for the great, but he came for the least of these. There is a clearly biblically cogent reason why he came in such poverty. And Paul gives it to us in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. There we read the following. For you know the grace, grace is unmerited favor. Grace is not what we can do. It's not what we can earn. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What this is talking about is the greatest cosmic trade in all of history. Jesus is rich. He is the creator of all, the sustainer of all. He has the beck and call of the angels. He controls what we now call heaven, what he created after his ascension. He is rich. And he traded his richness for our poverty. Our poverty speaks to our sin. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.8 says, If we claim that we have not sinned, we are liars and the truth is not in us. And again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that through him we might become the righteousness of God. He saw us in our poverty and he traded his richness, his perfection, for our sin. And so he went to the cross and our sin was placed on Christ so that the perfect fellowship between father and son is broken. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he took our poverty, our sin, and he made us rich that if we, by faith, believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, we would be given eternal life. Paul put it this way in Romans 10, 9 and 10. He said, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. To be justified is not to be made righteous. To be justified is to be declared righteous. Because the righteousness of Christ covers our sin. And so in the eyes of God, we are declared righteous. And therefore, we are given entrance after this life into eternal life if we believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. Don't allow Christmas to go by 
without knowing Jesus as Savior. To believe in Christ, to confess that one is a sinner, and to accept his payment, his death for our sin, for your sin, for my sin, the great cosmic trade, and make him your Savior. Finally, let's remember that Jesus made time for us. The word time is used metaphorically several times. Let me read Luke 2.6. And while they were there, the time came. He made the time to come. The time came for her to give birth. Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, again, he made time for us. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. God made time for us. God continues to make time for us. When you and I go to God in prayer, God doesn't say, Jeff, not now. I'm on the 17th hole. I've got a 17 so far, going to the 18th hole. Not now, Jeff. Maybe a little later. No, God makes time for us. And this morning, you've made time for God. Thank you. It's a good model. But we need to make time for God throughout the rest of 2.16 into 2.17. Sometimes we allow life to get in the way of our time for God. Our hobbies, our activities, our jobs, the things we chase. And we don't come together for corporate worship. Well, not you, but some. We don't make time personally for prayer and devotion. God made time. God makes time for us. May we in 2017 make time for him. Well, I want to wish all of you a wonderful day, a Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you saw us in our poverty, that you made time and always make time for us. And in our poverty, you devised a plan through your willing son, Jesus, to give up the richness of heaven and to pay the penalty of our sin, which is death, to grant eternal life to all who by faith say, yes, Jesus, forgive me, become my savior, become the Lord of my life. And Father, today may we worship. And when the days and the weeks and the months and the years, may we worship. And may we make time. May we not allow the busyness of jobs or life or activities or hobbies. May we rightly make time for the Redeemer of our soul, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Christ of Christmas. To the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.